Isaiah chapter 65 verses 1 to 9. I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am to a nation that was not called by my name. I spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices a people who provoke me to my face continually, sacrificing in gardens and making offerings on bricks, who sit in tombs and spend the night in secret places, who eat pig's flesh and broth of tainted meat is in their vessels, who say, keep to yourself, do not come near to me, for I am too holy for you. These are a smoke in my nostrils, a fire that burns all the day. Behold, it is written before me, I will not keep silent, but I will repay. I will indeed repay into their lap both your iniquities and your, and your father's iniquities together, says the Lord, because they have made offerings on the mountains and insulted me on the hills. I will measure into their lap payment for their former deeds. Thus says the Lord, as the new wine is found in the cluster, and they say, do not destroy it, for there is a blessing in it. So I will do for my servant's sake and not destroy them all. I will bring forth offspring from from Jacob and from Judah, possessors of my mountains. My chosen shall possess it and my servants shall dwell there. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hallelujah. Join me in prayer, please. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for today. Lord, we thank you. Father, for the blessing of cooler temperatures today, Lord. Lord, we thank you for calling us out of our sleep and into worship. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the time that we have been able to uh, study together already this morning, the time we've been able to sing your praises and confess our faith together this morning. And Lord, we pray, God, that as we continue to worship you in word and in Eucharist, Lord, that we would worship you in spirit and in truth. And so, Lord, we pray as we open your word together this morning and hear it proclaimed that you would open our minds and our hearts and our ears to believe and to understand what the Spirit has inspired and what you have said in your word. And we pray these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Uh, Leo the Great, who, just for historical nerdiness sake, was the first in church history to be titled with the Great. Uh, Leo the Great, who was a church father from the 5th century, and also uh, Bishop of Rome, he stated this in a sermon based upon this passage. He said that this text promises us that God came to seek and to restore his image in us. He writes this. I'm going to read the whole quote because I just think it's beautiful. He says, "If, If, dearly beloved, we comprehend faithfully and wisely the beginning of our creation, then we shall find that mankind was made in God's image to the end that man might imitate the creator. And that our race attains its highest natural dignity by the form of the divine goodness being reflected in us as in a mirror. So assuredly, he says, so assuredly to this form, the Savior's grace is daily restoring us. 
And the cause of our restoration is nothing else but the mercy of God, whom we would not have loved unless he had first loved us and dispelled the darkness of our ignorance by the light of his truth. This quote from Leo really points us, I think, to the overall grand narrative, right, or the meta-narrative of Scripture, which is creation and then fall, and restoration, and then, or redemption, and then now restoration. And so as we come to our text in Isaiah 65 this morning, I want to keep a couple of words, literally two words, of Leo in mind as we look at this text. And the first is this word, image. This has been a word that's been thrown around recently, especially even just this morning, right? But Leo notes here in this quote that we are created in God's image, right? Now, we all know that and we affirm that. The Latin term is the imago dei, or as some pronounce it, imago dei. We were created in God's image in order to imitate and to mirror the goodness of God. The fact that we have been created in God's image, Leo says, is our highest natural dignity. And it is in this image of God that our own David Burke even encouraged us a few weeks ago after the end of worship that we should look to try and see the image of Christ, the image of God in every face that we encounter. But we know very clearly from Scripture, even the earliest chapters of Scripture, that this image has been broken, or at least it has been distorted. The mirror has been cracked. It's been shattered by sin. It's been shattered by a rejection of the Lord God. It's been shattered by the effects of the fall on on mankind. So image is the first word. The second word to keep in mind from Leo here is the word mercy. It is only by God's mercy through the passion and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus that we are restored to the complete and unbroken image of God in us that was broken in the fall and that continues to be broken by sin. And so I think what Leo's quote helps us with this morning as we approach Isaiah 65 is really to give us a useful framework on the assurance that this text provides us with, which is an assurance of the restoration of the Imago Dei within each and every person that the Holy Spirit has regenerated and called to faith in Christ Jesus. So just consider, just verse 1, how the Lord God provides us with an assurance of the restoration of his image in us just in this one verse. He says this. He says, I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. And I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. And I said, here am I, here am I to a nation that was not called by my name or a nation that did not call upon my name. Notice, at least at the beginning, the repetition of this phrase, right? I was ready, I was ready. The Lord said he was ready to be sought. He was ready to be found by those who did not ask for him and those who did not seek him. Now, most of us know this already, but anytime something is repeated in Scripture, it means you need to pay attention to it. Um, so, for example, we read just a few weeks ago at the beginning of Eastertide in Revelation 1, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. The late, and in my opinion, great R.C. Sproul uh, was always fond of saying, God isn't just holy, he's holy, 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 right? There's, there's an intentional aspect behind that repetition of the word holy. So repetition in Scripture absolutely matters. And the reason is, is because the Hebrew language It uses repetition, especially the Hebrew language, to stress significance. Simply because Hebrew has no other way in its language structure to draw the reader's attention to significance. Right? Because in English, right, we use exclamation points. This is why you look in your English translations 
And in these proclamations of God being holy, 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 there's an exclamation point at the end of each, right? Because we use exclamation points. Hebrew doesn't have that, so it uses repetition. But I got a little curious, right, because I, I can't help myself. So I pulled out the Septuagint, right, which is the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Because Greek, in its word structure, sometimes is a little bit more specific in how it proclaims things. And the Septuagint was actually quite helpful here because in the Greek, this verse reads this. At least the beginning part, God says, I was manifest to those who did not seek me. And I was found by those who did not ask for me. So just consider briefly how both of these translations, the Greek and the Hebrew, really help work toward our assurance of the restoration of God's image. God is ready to be sought and to be found. And because God is ready to be sought and to be found... He has made himself manifest. He has revealed himself to those who were not looking and were not asking. Jerome rightly attributes all of this to the revelation of God. He he says this. He says, this verse means that those who once had no knowledge of God later sought the Lord and came to know him by means of revelation alone. But notice here in verse 1, he also says this. I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. And I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. And so we have to ask that question, right? Who are these that he's talking about? Because he's speaking in Isaiah. He's speaking to Old Testament Israel. Well, obviously, he's talking about the Gentiles. He's talking about you and me. He's talking about the church. In Romans 10, Paul takes this translation directly to mean the church. And he says this. Isaiah is as bold to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. And I have shown myself. I have manifested myself to those who did not ask for me. Calvin, John Calvin writes here, and he says, God shows that the Gentiles were anticipated by the grace of God and that they brought no merit or excellence as an enticement to God to give himself to them. And so this promise of the church, though, becomes clearer as you finish out the verse, and God again repeats himself, and he says, I said, here am I, here am I, to a nation that did not call upon my name. So thinking back to this restoration of God's image, What we see in this one verse alone is not only a promise of the church, but a process of God's revelation to the entire world. It's a process of his manifestation to those who were not of Old Testament Israel. Again, Paul writes in Romans 10, he says, I asked, did Israel not understand? But Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation, and I will make, with a foolish nation, I will make you angry. And so because God was ready to be sought and ready to be found, he reveals himself and he's made himself manifest through the revelation of the incarnation of Christ, who has made the Father known, John tells us. And he has made himself manifest by sending his Spirit, pouring out his Spirit upon all flesh, who glorifies the Son, as Jesus tells us in John 16, by making the Son known. And so, Through these revelations, the Lord God shouts to those who are not of Old Testament Israel, to those who are not looking for him and those who are not asking for him. He shouts to them, here I am. And he shouts, here I am to restore you to my image. Here I am to redeem you. Here I am to call you to me. And here I am to, even though you are a nation that does not call upon my name, I will make you my nation. He shouts, here I am to return you to your rightful image of me. And for the purpose in which I created you, which is to mirror me and to mirror my goodness to the world. And as we move on, 
I was thinking about this. You know, we could have been really, really sneaky and just cut this whole thing off at verse 1 and not moved any further. And we could have, we could have cut it off at verse 1, moved into the, into the goodness of Christ and the goodness of the gospel, and then come to the table, and we could have wrapped up this whole restoration of the image of God, assurance thing, in a nice little bow, and gone on to lunch and just been happy. But if you're like me, and you can't help it, right? I, actually, I started a new book this morning just over breakfast, just a little fiction book. And I kind of knew how the chapter was going to end, but every time I read a, a book that kind of starts to anticipate and the, and the spoiler is on the same page, my eyes can't help but go further down, right? And I spoil myself, right? This is how when I was reading through Harry Potter, I kind of learned how, like, Voldemort really died, right? Like, it ruined it for me. But you can't, you can't help yourself, right? Your eyes start to, start to get drugged down further, and so you're reading this, you're looking at verse 1, right? And you're like, oh, this is great, this is assurance, this is restoration, God is shouting, here I am. But I'm looking at verses 2 through 7. In verses 2 through 7, they, they don't sound all that nice, right? They sound pretty ominous, actually. So we're reading about this manifestation of God, and he's revealed himself to us. But verses 2 through 7 sound like rejection more than restoration. And you're absolutely right. It does. Because in verse 2, at least through the first half, first half of verse 5, there is absolutely a very clear, common theme of rejection running through them. But let me reread them and pay attention to that rejection. Listen to what he says. God says, I spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices, a people who provoke me to my face continually, sacrificing in gardens and making offerings on bricks, who sit in tombs and spend the night in secret places, who eat pig's flesh and broth of tainted meat is in their vessels, and who say, keep to yourself, do not come near me, for I am too holy for you. So yeah, you can see rejection there. But did you notice that none of what we just read was God rejecting his own? Israel has rejected him. It's very clear in those few verses. In verses 2 through 5, what they do is they walk us through really a swan dive of Israel into their rejection of Yahweh their God. Look again at what God has done and how they have responded. In verse 2, he says, I have stretched out my hands. I have spread out my hands. In Romans ten twenty one, Paul, again, he's quoting Isaiah, and he writes this. But of Israel, Isaiah says, all, long, all day long... I have held up my hands to a disobedient and a contrary people. In the calling of Abraham, God held out his hands by covenanting with him and to make his descendants a great nation. In delivering them from slavery out of Egypt, God held out his hands to fulfill the promises he made to Abraham and to Isaac and Jacob. In the crossing of the Red Sea and giving them victory over their enemies in establishing the throne of David, God continually held out his hands to his covenant people. But let's not stop there. Let's just take it forward because we're the New Testament church, right? Let's take it forward to its natural conclusion that the fathers and the Orthodox, even the Reformers and the Puritans all agree on. In the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, God in the flesh literally stretched out his hands to a people that he desires to covenant with. Matthew Henry writes here and he says, when Christ was crucified, his hands were spread out and stretched forth as if he were preparing to receive returning sinners to himself. 
And Calvin notes, he says, the Lord never speaks without stretching out his hands to join us to himself. So in his mercy and in his grace, God has stretched out his hands in order to redeem us and to restore us to our unbroken and rightful image of himself. But Israel, God tells us as we continue through verse 2, he tells us that they are constantly rejecting his outstretched hands. They were rebellious, he says in verse 2. The Septuagint reads this. It says, they, they disobeyed and they contradicted me. Paul, again, he says, they were disobedient and contrary. In verse 2, it says that they walked in a way that is not good, but rather followed after their own devices, or they followed after their sins and their sinful ways. In short, what he's telling us is that the people of Israel, they were self-willed. They were unwilling to honor the Lord. They were unwilling to honor his law. They were unwilling to even honor the covenant that he had made with them in his mercy and in his love. The image was broken. It was distorted. And they rejected him. But then verses 3 through 5 start to take us even deeper. And the Lord starts to describe in more detail how they walk in a way in their sinful ways, how they walk in a way that is disobedient, how they provoke him to his face. He says, he says they provoke God, they provoke him constantly right to his face by sacrificing in gardens and by making offerings on bricks. Now, at face value, right, if you're, if you're just thinking this, you're reading it and you're like, well, that didn't make a big deal, right? They're worshiping God where they are, so who really cares? But you got to consider this at least within the context of Old Testament Israel for a moment and see how they are rejecting the Lord God. Because by sacrificing in gardens, they are intentionally rejecting the sacrifices of the temple. By making offerings on bricks, they are intentionally rejecting the offerings made on the altar. And again, Matthew Henry, he's writing here, he says that they cared not what kind of affront they gave to God. And they were, downright contempt, they were in downright contempt of his authority and in defiance of his justice. And then if that weren't bad enough, their rejection of God, it just continues to spiral. In verse 4, he goes on and God says, they, sit who, they are people who sit in tombs and they spend the night in secret places. The Septuagint, again, is, it's really helpful here because it's a little bit more direct. It says, they sleep in graves and they sleep in caves for the sake of dreams. Again, this is another place where the fathers and the reformers and the Puritans, they're all in agreement. They say that there's a few things that could be understood here. It could be either intentional demonic worship or it could be necromancy. And they, because what they're doing is they're seeking answers from the dead, Calvin states. Really, what they're doing is they're following in the sin of Saul and the witch of Endor by calling back the spirit of Samuel from the dead. They're seeking counsel from the spirits and from the dead instead of counsel from the Lord God. And then God goes on in verse 4 and he states that not only are they sleeping in caves for the sake of dreams, not only are they possibly worshiping demons and spirits and calling spirits back from the dead, but he goes on and he says that they're, they're eating pig's flesh. And they're, and they're drinking broth of tainted meat. Shorthand, without having to go through the entire law to understand this, shorthand, what they're doing is they're consuming what is forbidden to those who have covenanted with Yahweh God. And while all of these things, they're absolutely heinous acts from somebody who calls themselves a believer of God. But it, it not only makes them unclean, but what it does is it intentionally provokes the Lord to his face. Because it is a rejection of him and his mercy and his outstretched hands. 
even after all of his mercy, after all of holding his hands out to them, calling them out of Egypt, making a covenant with them, making them a nation, they took what the Lord had commanded to them and they made it trivial. And then, as you move into verse 5, they do something that would be laughable if it wasn't so outrageous. After doing all of this, they proclaim themselves as holy. They say this, Keep to yourself and do not come near to me, for I am too holy for you. Now this could either be to the Lord himself or to even their neighbors around them. Augustine called this spiritual arrogance. Because think about it, what they've done, just reading through verses 3 and 4, what they've done is they have done exactly what God commanded them not to do when they went in to inhabit the land. They adopted the practices of the worship of the people of the land. They're not only violating the law of God, but what they're doing is outright rejecting the law of God. And then what they're doing is they're turning to their neighbors who they were commanded to image God to, who they were commanded as being made in the image of God to proclaim Yahweh to because they had an understanding of Yahweh because he had revealed himself to them. Instead, They've gladly adopted their sinful worship, worship practice, happily done it. And then they're turning around to those same people and they're saying, I'm too holy for you. Don't come near to me. I mean, the arrogance, right? The hypocrisy in this. It's no wonder as you move through the rest of verse 5 and go through 5, 6, and 7, it's no wonder that God responds the way in which he responds. Because in their rejection of him, in their attitudes, in their acts of false worship, all of these things lead to the burning anger of the Lord God. He says this at the end, in the rest of verse 5. He says, all of these things, these are a smoke in my nostrils and a fire that burns all the day. Now, my understanding about wood fires, which is very minimal, right? And I have to have some serious help to get one going. But wood fires that burn really, really smoky is usually because the wood is just wet, right? It's just absolutely and utterly damp. And you can't get a good, pleasant fire from wet wood. It just The only thing that I know that can burn wet wood, at least from reading Tolkien, are you know, dwarves and hobbits. So it's the only thing that can get a fire going in really, really wet wood. Maybe you know, if you've got something hot enough. But really, even then, it's going to burn really wet. It's going to burn very smoky. At the end of the day... Even if it burns all the day, as he says here, it's nothing but a smoky, wet mess, and you can't do anything with it. So consider, consider this smoky, wet mess in relation to, to Israel's hypocrisy, especially at the end of verse 5. This false holiness of theirs is nothing but a useless pile of wet wood. Again, Matthew Henry, he's writing here, he says, There is nothing in men that is absolutely more odious and offensive to God than a proud conceit of ourselves and a contempt for others. This is how we can understand that when they say, don't come near me, I'm too holy for you, that they're saying this to their neighbors whose sinful worshipful practice they, that, that, they, that they've adopted. And so they're telling us that the image of God is broken and it's distorted by their false worship and their false holiness. And God can't abide it. And so he comes to verse 6 and he says, Behold, it is written before me, I will not keep silent, but I will repay, and I will indeed repay into their bosom. And so the Lord begins here, and he reminds them, he says, it is written. Essentially, he's saying, look, you have my law. You've got it written down, 
And if you've been doing it right, like most of you kind of have, you've been teaching your law to your children as you get up in the morning and as you walk by the way, but you've not kept it. And you've ignored it. And you've intentionally provoked me to anger by rejecting it. And so he can't keep silent. He can't let this continue. But notice, he says something else. He says, I will repay and I will repay into their bosom. So this really adds to the depravity of their hypocrisy because, because there's one of two things that could be happening here. The fact that they're, he's repaying into their bosom. It's something their innermost self is another way of translating this. And so this, this tells us that either they were concealing their sin and they thought no one would find out. Or, because it's their innermost self, they thought that, you know what, God, he's not going to call me on it, and I'm going to just keep doing it anyway. Because, I mean, look, things are going fine, right? I'll just keep doing what I want. Or it could be both. But again, he says, I will indeed repay. I will repay into their bosom. I will repay into your bosom both your sins and the sins of your fathers, and I'll do it at the same time, he says. And he goes on, and he says, this is why. Because they made offerings on the mountains, right? They made offerings outside of my temple. They insulted me on the hills by making offerings to all of the false idols that have been set up on the mountaintops around the, the countryside. And I will, re, I will measure into their bosom payment for their former deeds. The image is broken. It's distorted. And God says, I cannot keep silent. Really, this image is just absolutely bleak, right? This is a bleak situation. And you read something like this and you think, man alive, I'm, I'm glad I'm not them because that's bad. <laughs> that's really bad. But honestly, we have to ask the question, right? Are we really any all that different? Right? I mean, we may not practice demonic worship. And if you do, please don't leave this morning and let us talk to you, right? <laughs> we may not call forth the dead. And again, if you do that, don't leave this morning until we have prayed for you. But really, at the end of the day, is our sin any different before God? Does our sin deserve a milder response than what these people received? I think each and every one of us in the room would say, absolutely not. Because in our own sin, we reject the Lord and we provoke him to his face as much as Old Testament Israel did. But as we began, we looked at verse 1 again. Wouldn't that have been a better place to just leave it off and then come to the table and everything would have been happy and I would have had a good, encouraging day, right? This was supposed to be a day of assurance. You said Leo helps us understand that this passage means that we can be assured that God's image would be restored in us. This is a passage of encouragement, right? What, how is that supposed to be encouraging, right? I thought God was holding out his hand, manifested himself, and was calling himself to us. Why didn't we just stop at verse 1? I mean, after all this unpleasant self-reflection of verses 2 through 7, does God really want this, right? That's, that's kind of where we're at. How do we know, though, that God will remain faithful when we, like Israel, take our own swan dive into sin? If this is how he responded to his covenant people, how do we know that he's not going to change his mind about us? Well, first, and we'll see this in verses 8 and 9. First, remember from this text that it was Israel that rejected God, not the other way around. But then second, God does not forget his covenant, and he does not forget his promises. Listen to what he says in these last two verses. He says, Thus says the Lord, As the new wine is found in the cluster, and they say, Do not destroy it, for there is still blessing in it. 
So I will do for my servants' sake, and I will not destroy them all. And I will bring forth a seed from Jacob. I'm going to change the ESV a little bit here. I will bring forth a seed from Jacob. And from Judah, possessors of my mountains, my chosen shall possess it, and my servants shall dwell there. So approach these final verses from what we just looked at in the heinousness of verses 2 through 7. Right? We've seen the depravity of the sin of Israel. They've rejected God, they've rejected his covenant, and it has rightly provoked him to anger. They have become, he tells us in verse 5, a a useless smoky pile of wood in his nostrils, and they burn all the day long. They're not good for anything. And so he pours out his judgment upon them for their sin and for the sin of their fathers and their fathers' fathers and their fathers' fathers' fathers. But think back, just even this past week, and I know it wouldn't be that hard if you've been in the country, of the nasty, nasty heat wave we just went through, right? It's been hot. Like, our air conditioners had a problem, right? It has been hot. My plants and my little garden have, have been sad this week, right? I, I go out in the evening after the shade has finally hit them, and I water them so that way maybe they'll recover a little bit, and they've done okay. I, I may have lost a tomato plant or two, but that's all right, because I have way too many planted, and I'm going to have too many tomatoes. So if they, if they fruit, then get ready for some tomatoes, all right? You guys are going to have some. But they're blasted by this heat. In the same way, in verse 8, we come to this vine of grapes, and it has been blasted by this heat of the sin and rejection of God. And the cluster now has been withered and it has been beaten. But found within that cluster is new wine. The Septuagint, again, it's helpful. It says there's a grape. There's one little grape found inside the cluster. And it has remained unstained from the disease that has infected the rest of the plant. And this happens all the time with plants. If you've ever gardened or even planted a tree, you notice that sometimes a plant gets sick, right? And sometimes a plant can be saved, right? And it can be saved. And the best way really to save a sick plant, if it's, sa- if it's savable at all, is to lop off the part that's sick, right? If you come across, like, a plant that just has some gross-looking leaves, you know, a lot of times it's just as simple just to pick those off or even pick off that little branch, and it's usually okay. But you... You can cut off the part that's sick for the purpose of hopefully saving the whole. And that's really what's happening here in these last two verses. Here is where the restoration of the image of God is taking place because God always preserves a remnant. He always preserves a single grape. The promises of God, he tells us, has not failed and they will not fail because he remains faithful to the covenant promises that he has already made. And if, even if his people haven't remained faithful, he remains faithful. He says this, As a grape is found in the withered, diseased cluster, so for my servant's sake, for Abraham's sake, Isaac's, for David's sake, for the sake of the covenant promises that I have made, I will keep them even if they won't. For my servant's sake, I will not destroy them all, but I will bring forth a seed from Jacob. And my chosen shall possess it, and my servant shall dwell there. In the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, the seed from Jacob, the image of God is restored. In the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, the image that has been distorted by the fall and by sin and by our own rejection of God and his covenant promises is redeemed and restored. And our response is clear for both the Christian and the non-Christian alike. 
God is ready to be found, and he has manifested himself through his word and through Christ the Lord and through the pouring out of his spirit. God, in his mercy and in his grace, is shouting, Here I am. Come to me and be restored to my image so that you can bring me glory and proclaim my redemption throughout the whole earth. So listen again to that quote from Leo the Great. He says, If, dearly beloved, we comprehend faithfully and wisely the beginning of our creation, we shall find that mankind was made in God's image to the end that man might imitate the creator and our race attains its highest natural dignity by the form of the divine goodness being reflected in us as in a mirror. So assuredly to this form, the Savior's grace is daily restoring us. And the cause of our restoration is nothing else but the mercy of God, whom we would not have loved unless he had first loved us and dispelled the darkness of our ignorance by the light of his truth. So seek the Lord while he may be found, Isaiah says a few chapters earlier. Seek him while he may be found and call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked abandon his ways and the unrighteous man abandon his thoughts. And let him return to Yahweh, for he shall forgive your sins abundantly. Thanks be to God. Amen.